Welcome. You're listening to Janesville Mobilizing for Changes Together for Change podcast, your source for local substance abuse prevention matters in Janesville and Rock County. Here's your host, Aaron Davis. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. This is Aaron Davis, your host for Together for Change. Today, I'd like to welcome Kelsey Hood Christensen, the director of the Beloit Domestic Violence Survivor Center. Thank you for joining us, Kelsey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So am I. Well, I'm excited to have you here. (laughs) (laughs) Today, I would like to discuss with you the impact that COVID has had on your agency and your clients and how Beloit DV has adapted to meet the needs of the people that you serve. So can you start by telling us about Beloit DV, the prevalence of domestic violence and the services that you offer? Absolutely. So Beloit Domestic Violence Survivors Center is a program of family services of Southern Wisconsin and Northern Illinois. And we've been in our community actually since the 80s. And our program has changed throughout the years, um, but it's been very shelter-based until probably the last four or five years when we've really started expanding to meet other community needs um, other than shelter. And and that really speaks to the prevalence. It's, it's hard to say these are the exact numbers of domestic violence in our community because what we can go off are the number of survivors we serve, but we, we always know that there are more survivors out in our community that um, have not reached out for a variety of reasons, whether they have not found a safe time to do so, or they are still within that cycle of abuse and are unsure to reach out, unsure, unsure if our services are for them. So what we can say about domestic violence is we know that it's very prevalent in our community and that domestic violence being within even a single home within within our neighborhoods, within our, our community, it impacts all of us. It, it, it negatively impacts the community as a whole. Well, and one person who is abusive is likely to have several, um, several victims throughout their lifetime, right? Absolutely. I think that's a great point that you bring up. So we know that perpetrators of abuse are not, we, we tend to focus on abusive relationships as though, how did the victim respond? Why didn't they leave? But we know that the abuse is, is the responsibility and the action of the perpetrator, of the abuser. And so if a victim is able to leave that abusive relationship, that perpetrator is, is unfortunately likely to find another person and enter into a relationship with another person and repeat those abusive behaviors again with that other person until that perpetrator seeks out significant help for their abusive tendencies. And so it isn't just, as you said, the single person that's in the abusive relationship. It's an ongoing, ongoing relationships with the perpetrator. And is that something that happens frequently that the perpetrator actually seeks help? I, we don't work with perpetrator services, um, but we do work with um, the survivor, survivors we've worked with. I have seen um, different survivors enter our services and report the same perpetrator, um, and they are completely unconnected. Again, it was just it was just a perpetrator that went from one victim, and then when that relationship ended, went to another victim, and um, so. I don't see, we have not seen the perpetrators we, we have seen a repeat of, we've not seen them seek out help unless they were court ordered to. But again, that's completely outside of our realm. We're focused on our survivor services, so I can't speak too much to that. Yeah, I think it would be difficult to house both of those services in the same 
um, well, the same facility, obviously, that can't happen, but even within the same organization, I think it would be really mm-hmm. difficult to do those both together. Yes, there are some organizations, there are some survivor advocacy centers that in, in the state of Wisconsin that do offer both. But, um, and I'm sure that they had to do a lot of infrastructure and program planning to make sure they can do that in a safe way. And that's not something that we've looked at at this point. Right. So you had mentioned that um, within the last three to four years, you've moved away from just providing the shelter services and going into the community and providing other services. What are some of those other services? Yeah, we've really focused on, so prior to our change, we had, we had support groups, we had case management, we had those services, we, we had legal advocacy, but it was really focused on working with those who are currently residing within our shelter. And then it came to a point where we realized that our shelter, number one, only has a maximum capacity. We can only house so many people within our shelter at a time. And number two, there are so many survivors that are able to stay within their homes or stay within friends and with friends and family because we know shelter is kind of the least worst alternative. Nobody really wants to go to a shelter. Right. But we had so much to offer to extend to those survivors. And so those services would include our case management for those who are not residing with us, um, somebody to walk alongside you and and to help you achieve your goals and make connections and provide those resources and network within the community, as well as court accompaniment and legal advocacy. Uh, we have our support groups and our parenting classes, children services for children and youth, and we're also able to provide all of those with a bilingual advocate for the Spanish-speaking community as well. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, so how has COVID interrupted the work that you're doing? What do you have to do differently? What can't you do at all? Yeah, we have, so we've continued to operate throughout this time. Shelter is certainly essential, even with a pandemic going on. So we have continued to operate and keep our keep all of our services open. Uh, so we do have some advocates who continue to work on site and in person and continue to provide these services. We have, however, done our best to shift to teleservices for the safety of everyone we are serving and for our staff. So for those survivors that are able to access teleservices, we've, we've moved to that platform. Um, going out into the community, a lot of our community events and uh, groups have been canceled. And so we've looked at providing those in a virtual format as well and recording presentations that we could get into schools. And so we've tried to stay, we've tried to replicate as much as we can virtually, but whatever we've been required to continue to provide in services um, just due to access or, or need such, such as those shelter services, we, we've continued to do. And have you had to change how you provide your shelter services? For example, take fewer people, not let new people in? We, uh, we never really limited the number of people. So we remained at capacity throughout, our, um, throughout, throughout COVID. We've remained at capacity. But what we have done is we've looked at, there's a lot of communal space in our shelter. So any resident who's staying with us, has their own room, but any other space in the shelter, the the kitchen, the dining room, the restrooms, the living room, that's all communal space. So we've really had to look at that and see how we can do so in a safe manner, which as everybody knows, requires increased cleaning, of course, but we've also, we've also looked at, um, 
how can we decrease the number of social gatherings there? How can we decrease the um, the risk posed to others, especially as we're bringing somebody into shelter? So we have tried to uh, we have tried to limit the the back and forth or the the in and out essentially where um, because we have a pretty a pretty easy procedure as far as if you're staying with us where you're allowed to go take overnights elsewhere you're you're allowed to come and go as you'd like we don't have a curfew where we lock down shelter but we've had to alter some of those things to try to decrease non-essential exiting and entering of shelter for everybody's safety yeah because every time someone goes out they run the risk of coming back with something that you don't want there absolutely absolutely and and again with our with our traditional shelter policies being very relaxed the attention really is so that every family that's with us can can operate as if they are within their home and they can they can interact as a family they can engage with the community as they would in their own independent living and really any rules and guidelines within shelter are focused on maintaining safety for everybody right but now we've come into a situation where essentially physical safety is at risk if somebody is having those non-essential trips in and out of shelter. Yeah, it's certainly a different time that we're living in. Yes, very interesting. Very interesting. We we are very well connected to the rest of the domestic violence advocacy field in the state and connect with them at least on a weekly basis as a group. And so we've re- received a lot of support that way as long as, as well as with other local homeless service providers. So um, while everybody's navigating new territory, we have a great network of support. I'm glad to hear that because otherwise it would be really difficult to figure everything out. Yes. <laughs> so I would think, and um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think that as people are hunkered down at home, they're not spending as much time you know, at, at their place of work or in school, et cetera, that domestic violence would be on the rise have you seen that there are any specific needs or services that have been identified as being greater or more prominent now that COVID has disrupted, well, everything? Yeah, uh, it was actually an interesting trend with our program there for a little bit. So we knew, we've seen from from national surveys, from research being done, we knew that during the shelter at home in place that domestic violence was on, on the rise, but we actually seen a decline in our hotline calls which was reflected again across the state with other organizations. But we, we knew in our heart and from what we see, see coming out in the research that it wasn't because domestic violence was going down. It was because survivors didn't have a safe place or an opportunity to contact us. So That's what I was we thinking. have, right. We have a lot of survivors that contact us when they, when the perpetrators at work or, visiting with friends and family or outside of the home, or we will even go and meet with survivors in other locations. So at other appointments, at doctor's appointments, out in the community, at a library, whatever we can do to make that safe. And when those options were no longer there, people didn't have the opportunity to contact for services. Yeah. When, so when the shelter at home orders were lifted and people started going back into the community, we've seen our hotline numbers skyrocket they went they increased dramatically um and it was people who have worked with our services before calling us again maybe they they found themselves in an okay okay place and then throughout shelter at home things unraveled a bit but we also seen a number of survivors that we had never been in contact with before contact 
contact us indicating that um, their that their relationship during the shelter place they they had experienced abuse during that, and they were contacting for services now that it was safe. And I would um, think that there would actually be a lot of instances of new abuse because there are new stressors being placed on people. Yeah, and that's where I think the new survivors that were reaching out to us, that's where, what I think was happening a lot there. So we had a number of people who maybe were in controlling relationships, isolating relationships, but didn't think it reached a level to need advocacy or to want to engage an advocate. And then during shelter at home, with everybody being home consistently, with us being, um, or and with the economic stressors a lot of people are experiencing, that abusive relationship or that controlling relationship may have ex- escalated into a physically abusive relationship for that person to want to work with an advocate. It's very scary to think about. Um, I'm glad to hear that after the, the Safer at Home order lifted that people were able to get in touch with you. Again, um, I suppose that's one of those unintended consequences of doing something to keep people safe. Right, right. Yes, there was a lot of concern. I know within our organization, other um, victim organizations, not only domestic violence, but sexual assault, child welfare, there was a lot of concern of who at this time is out there and unsafe, but we're unable to access. There was a lot of concern. Well, I'm glad you're there to help them. Um, We're going to take a quick break. We're going to learn about toxic stress, and then we will be back. Imagine a bear is chasing you through the woods. Your heart is pounding. Your mind is racing. You feel anything but safe. This kind of stress event ends quickly. But when children don't feel safe in their homes, schools, or neighborhoods, the ongoing stress can change their brains. Protect children from toxic stress by helping them feel safe and secure, model healthy coping skills, and reduce their exposure to serious stress. Learn more about toxic stress at jm4c.org. That's jm4c.org. All right. Well, welcome back. I just wanted to um, hear that ad about toxic stress because it seems really germane to what Kelsey and I are talking about. Just before the break, we were discussing how Beloit DV has adapted to fit the current situation. And now I'd like to kind of switch gears and talk about whether future adaptations are coming. Um, I understand that the CARES Act has increased the availability of assistance to high-need populations has this affected your clients, Kelsey? Will future funding for COVID recovery be made available? Yeah, our, we've been able to secure some of the CARES Act funding for uh, motel vouchers and rental assistance. Uh, we have previously, we've previously offered motel vouchers, but in response to this pandemic, we are offering, we are using motel vouchers at a far increased rate. And again, that simply comes down to shelter capacity. Uh, We are seeing such an increased number of need for housing due as a result of the pandemic. So we've been trying to meet those needs again with the, with rental, rental assistance and motel vouchers. Um, I do understand that there, there may be additional COVID recovery coming. And um, that would be my hope as the need is still definitely out there. And um, I think that we'll continue to still see a need for emergency shelter and for uh, assistance to remain in somebody's current home. So when you're providing the assistance for someone to remain in their current home, are you speaking of past victims of domestic violence? Yeah, our program is not focused. We don't necessarily focus on imminent risk. 
So we understand that domestic violence can impact somebody. Not only may they, they might be fleeing their home because their home is unsafe, but we also know that experiencing domestic violence, even if that safety factor or risk factor is removed from the home, that can still leave somebody very unstable and not able to remain in that housing. So maybe there is a domestic violence incident and the perpetrator is removed from the home. Maybe perpetrator is incarcerated, but that survivor is now taking on the burden of the entire financial aspect of maintaining that home for that family. And so it's not housing instability that we see in domestic violence isn't always just because they had to flee a home where a perpetrator remains, but it can be that ending that abusive relationship or as a result of that abusive relationship, that person has become financially unstable. And so that is where we hope to be able to step in. And and that would really be our goal. If we could prevent somebody from coming into shelter, that really is the best option for somebody to remain in their home. And so whether that looks like us helping them with their upcoming rent, or if we can help them to change their locks or put in other safety measures within their home. If we can do that, that's really what we would strive to do rather than bringing them into shelter. You know, that's a really good point and not something that I think I would have come up with on my own that, you know, those survivors whose perpetrators are in jail or are removed um, somehow still need a way to get by and Mm -hmm. that they used to rely probably on a double income that no longer is coming in. Right. Right. And that's a huge burden for a single person. Absolutely. So what do you see as likely future services and needs, knowing what currently is going on in the public health crisis? I think we'll continue to focus on housing stability for for a while. Um, That has been, you know, that's been a focus of our program, but we've, we've been trying to push beyond that. But I think this pandemic has really set us back in housing stability within our community. So I I think there will be an ongoing need for not only rental assistance or housing assistance, but also things like utility assistance, need basic needs like food. Um, So providing those elements, I really think that that is probably where we're going to be focused for a while, unfortunately. Um, Has the eviction moratorium been helpful in terms of the housing crisis? It, it has been. So we've been watching that um, develop the federal eviction moratorium. We've been watching that story develop. And there, there was an eviction moratorium at one point with the shelter in place. And then we've seen a lot of need come. So we're, we're watching this moratorium develop as, as it's coming down and hoping that that will be an important element and will help. Um, and so hopefully we can we can help with some of the stabilities that doesn't that doesn't fall underneath that. So whether that is you know, again those utilities or other basic needs, but I do think that that will be a big help for many people. And if someone did find that they needed Beloit DV services, what are the steps that they need to take? What makes them eligible, and where can they go to get assistance from Beloit DV? Eligibility is so simple. Somebody just if they identify as a survivor of domestic violence, whether that was today, yesterday, 20 years ago, and they feel like they still need assistance in, in overcoming that, that experience, they're eligible for our services. So we are willing to do what we can to meet whatever needs survivors present with. And to get assistance from us, they can call our hotline, um, 
364-1083. They could also reach out through our website. So we are at statelinefamilyservices.org and you can find our program page and they can email us or call us from there. Um, so all they have to do is reach out and we will do what we can and, and talk to them about what their needs are, what they're seeking and see if we can help meet that. And if somebody felt safer coming to you, is there a public office that people can access? So our location, our location that's attached to the shelter is undisclosed for safety reasons. Sure. We do have an office with that within the family services office building on College Street. That's at 416 College Street. So we do have a domestic violence advocate that is there. Um, as a result of COVID, a number of staff in that office are working remotely regularly. So um, it may be best for somebody to call at this point, but if that's simply just not an option, please stop by and we will have somebody respond to you. All right, great. And what would you like listeners to take away today? I think whenever we talk about the impact of domestic violence, I would I always strive to have listeners take away that leaving the abusive relationship and simply getting out of it does not mean that a survivor's journey is over. So we, we talked about how even if a perpetrator is incarcerated or that, that safety risk, that risk is removed, that a lot of people tend to think, okay, that person is, they're good now, they're safe, they're, everything's okay. But there's a lot of elements to rebuilding your life after an abusive relationship. And so, and that's, that's okay to help somebody walk through that journey. And that's okay to reach out for help to help rebuild those elements. Because again, it's not just as simple as just simply leaving the abusive relationship. And, and healing would take a long time. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. And maybe that journey is not the self-sufficiency, is not the, the financial independence, but like you said, the healing journey, the, the overcoming the, the traumatic response, your response to trauma that you've experienced during that. Um, and and that's, that's normal. A lot of survivors experience that, and, and that's what we want to be able to assist with. We do offer mental health counseling to survivors that, have, that are interested. So we want to help with that journey and just acknowledging that it's, it's not over just as soon as somebody, as the risk is done. There, is, there can be a long journey after that. And there's support out there for you. That's good. That's awesome. And finally, I heard that you have some exciting news coming up. Would you like to share that? Yes, we do. We're very excited. So actually, for the past year, we've been working on rebranding our organization. So as of October 1st, our name and our mission will change to better reflect what we're doing and the services we're providing. So we will now go by defy domestic abuse Beloit and with the mission of championing championing the inherent dignity of each individual and interrupt and dismantle the systemic cycle of domestic abuse. I so, love the name, but I really love the mission. Thank you so much. We are very excited. We, um, we feel that this move, this rebranding better represents the inclusive and the expansive services we offer, it's not limited to shelter any longer. At one point, our services were really focused on women, and we are completely gender neutral in our services. Our services are off, off open to any gender. Um, so we, we've really worked at 
pushing ourselves and improving our program. And we feel like this move, the new name, the new mission really reflects what we have to offer. And it really does. And you say it right in there. You're going to dismantle it. You're going to just yeah. tear it down. I love it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So. All right. Well, thank you, Kelsey, for joining us today for Together for Change. Uh, listeners, please stay tuned for our next episode and have a great day. Thank you so much, you as well. All right, thanks.